0: I'm Caitlin and I'm Shelby, and this is Finding
1: Gavin's Voice, a disability advocacy podcast building community around open conversation.
0: Hi, I'm Shelby and I'm Caitlin, and this is Finding Gavin's Voice. Today we are interviewing Ethan and his mom, Amy. Ethan is one of my friends that I have known for a while now. I met Ethan when I was a graduate student at the University of Tulsa, where he was receiving speech therapy, and gosh, that was, what, 2014, 2015, so we've been friends for like seven years now, eight years. We've known each other a long time. And Ethan likes to refer to himself as uncle of my kiddos, and he is just one of the best guys I know. So I couldn't be happier to be interviewing him and his mom, Amy. So without being said, Amy, can you give us a background, um, just a background story about You and your journey um, with Ethan, and then even into adopting Audrey. um, Just give our listeners some information about that.
2: Yeah. So I'm Amy Starkweather. Ethan is is my 22 year old son. We have um, four kiddos, and um, Ethan is our third third boy. And uh, found out right after he, I had some a little bit of complications the very end of my pregnancy. Um, the last few weeks, his growth slowed down, and um, he wasn't responding to some of our stress tests and things like that. So they ended up taking, uh, doing a an emergency C section, and we so we knew something in the last. Few weeks of pregnancy, something was going on, but we had no idea what. So when immediately after he was born, he had gosh, very little muscle tone, no crying. So he went straight to the NICU, and uh, we went through a bunch of different tests and, and things to find out what was going on. And it was he was about five weeks old when we got the results back from some of the genetic testing um, that showed Prader-Willi syndrome. And uh, you know, I had briefly heard of it before, but had really no idea at all what we were. Uh, you know, kind of what we were facing, what he was facing and uh, kind of just kicked off our journey from there. We kind of really hit the ground running with what he needed and um, how it was going to, you know, impact our family. And what we didn't know was we we kept hearing about all these struggles and challenges he was going to have. And definitely, certainly we have those, but what we never really heard was how great he was going to be. Um, Because of course nobody, you know, they're focused on, on the challenges and the problems, but he's an amazing young man. Thank you. (laughs) welcome. When Ethan was about 12, we, we talked, my husband and I talked about adoption um, possibly being something in our, you know, we were interested in you know, sometime in our lifetime. And really, we just got busy with our kids and life and taking care of Ethan's needs and hadn't really thought about it too much. And then, so we found out about um, a baby that was uh, needing a family who had Prader-Willi syndrome. Her parents had the decision that they weren't able to parent the way that they wanted to, wanted the best for her. And we just found out through the product release syndrome community is very well connected and just a great community. You know, it's not a community you want to have to be a part of, but if you are, it's a great community to be a part of. Families are, are super helpful and very well, you know, willing to help at any time. So we found out about her and I contacted, I spoke to my husband said, what do you think? He said, yeah, find out and uh, contacted the um, agency that they were connected with they sent me a picture and some information and then i took one look and i knew immediately yeah that gets me every time so i took one look at the her picture and i knew this is my daughter and um, they said you know we, we continued on the journey to doing everything we needed to do and they said it'll probably take six months she was um, bitty-bitty just a few weeks old and they um, said, it'll probably take six months. And um, everyone said, uh, you don't know her. <laughs> you don't know Amy. And uh, it took us just about six, about six, six, eight weeks to get everything done. We knew she needed to be home with us and to get started helping her and integrating her into our family. and. She's twelve. Well, she's not twelve. She's ten years getting ready to turn ten years old now. And I can't even imagine what life was like before she was here.
0: Right. And that's that's so special. And we
2: have a great relationship with her birth parents. Um they come now, COVID has hit, so we haven't been able to see them for a while, but they usually come
0: they are bonus.
2: Bonus, yeah, bonus family. Um we had no idea that we would how well we would hit it off and integrate you know our families together but they're a part of our family now and I think it's important for her to know you know where she came from and and all that so it's been good
0: Mm -hmm. I love that story Mm -hmm. and I think when I met Ethan I mean Audrey was she was I mean maybe a year maybe
2: I'm trying to remember. It seems like, I feel like we've known you forever, so that's where I'm having a hard but, um, yeah, she was probably, yeah, she was an infant, I'm sure.
0: And for some of our listeners who might not be very familiar with potter Willie syndrome, can Mm -hmm. you... Just give, Which I know that can encompass a lot. So give us the quick rundown of what that means yes. and yes. kind of some of the things that you have to do in your house mm-hmm. to make sure that they mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. healthiest and best versions of themselves.
2: prader syndrome is a genetic syndrome that affects the 15 chromosome. And there's a lot of different features that come along with it. And uh, the the most striking to most people is that they are hypothalamus doesn't work. It doesn't the stomach and the brain, the signal between the two doesn't, doesn't make its way. And they don't get the signal that they're full ever. So they always feel hungry. It's called hyperphagia. So without intervention, they can uh, uh, eat themselves to death. Um, It can, that can be a, that can look slow, be a slow process where food is not controlled and they're Unhealthy. Their metabolism is slower, so they actually require fewer calories. The other, some of the other features are hypotonia, very low muscle tone. There's a wide range. It's it's definitely um, there's a spectrum of it. Um, it affects every individual differently. There are some things that you can kind of go down the line and say, oh yeah, this is pretty common, but it's going to affect and impact each individual who has the syndrome differently and we definitely found that with two they have some very some things in common they're very similar and then there are things that are very unique and different and very surprising sometimes um, with the differences um, they're both unique individuals so that comes into play they both have the same syndrome but they have their own personalities and their own unique individual strengths and
0: right and that's something I think I always try to stress for so like caregivers and even professionals is that yeah. I think when we're going through school we learn about all these diagnoses and uh, syndromes and just how we can group them together. Right. But as you know, therapy and treatments and just how they respond to all of those different things is so different. So, Mm, yeah, you know, what works for Ethan isn't necessarily going to work with Audrey. Like it is so individualized when it comes to treatment. And does Ethan have epilepsy? Is that right?
2: He does. He does. And, you know, just like anyone else, you can have a variety of other things (laughs) as well that come along. Now it's not... I wouldn't say it's common, but there are um, you know, multiple individuals that we know that also have, you know, mm. rett release syndrome that have epilepsy. It's just a bunch of bunch of friends have that as well. Um, Absent seizures as a as a child, they weren't frequent enough or severe enough for um, neurologists to want to treat them with medication. And then it changed um, about three years ago the The type of seizures seizures changed, and he has to be on uh, medication twice a day for for that. But there's there's a wide range. One of our other issues that we have and struggles with we struggle with a lot is the hypotonia affects gosh everything from your eyesight to your, you know how you move every day to speech to your digestion that relies on muscles. So his their digestion is affected, and he has pretty severe gastroparesis, which we really have to keep an eye on and keep watch on and that really impacts a lot in addition to everything else that's going on we have to really watch how he's digesting
0: Um, you you have four kids and your Mm -hmm. two older boys were um, neurotypical and I'm sure the school system or the school process looked completely different for them than it did once Ethan entered school And some of the challenges. um, Can you talk a little bit about some of those challenges that you had as a parent of somebody with unique needs entering the public school system? Because if I remember correctly, you graduated from EPIC, right, Ethan? Yes.
2: Yes, we, we, he did graduate from Epic. We had many years at our public school system that were great. We had, when high school hit, (laughs) things changed and we had to figure out a different plan for him. But our years um, leading up to that, leading up to high school were really pretty good. I mean, we'd have our challenges, things would come up. It was really, I mean, I say it was really good, but there was, we had a battle every year, but it was, we were successful and things went pretty well for him. He had a paraprofessional and That for him was key. That that was something that was super important. That's kind of where we lost our our battle with our public school system um in for our local district is the change of a para. He had one the same para for oh goodness, twelve years or something along those lines. And she well he was about twelve, yeah so great part of our family still is, you know, we consider a member of our family and she really helped him navigate those days. But without that, I, it would, I think it would look very different. I think one of our biggest challenges was really just getting people to understand his unique needs, his strengths, and uh, what he needed to be successful in school. With Prader-Willi syndrome, a huge challenge is, is food. So food always has to be controlled and uh, <laughs> food is everywhere in our society, Food is all over the place. So that was a big challenge in school, especially, you know, elementary elementary school. Every celebration, every holiday, everything is food. And inexpensive, you know, teachers are overworked and underpaid and it's, they want to give their kids the students treats and uh, rewards and things like that. And it, the easiest, fastest, and probably the cheapest is typically food. But when you introduce food into the classroom with um, students who have Prader-Willi syndrome, their mind quits learning and they just focus on the food. So getting teachers to understand and oh often really change what the way they were teaching was a challenge. Um, we had some great teachers who really understood it and got it. And sometimes it took a while. Sometimes it took a teacher seeing how much it really Kalen, affected him.
0: Ms. Kalen got it quick.
2: Yeah, we had some teachers that we, we you know, just got it right off.
0: Ms. Luke. Yeah, and Ms. Johnson and mm-hmm. Montgomery
1: in From an educator perspective, I'm not an educator, but the thing that just popped into my head is even, I don't want to throw my mom's whole classroom under the bus, but a lot of her kiddos who are on free and reduced lunches and things like that, who don't ha- oh. necessarily have access to food at home. Okay. She keeps a snack closet and it's yes. not necessarily a reward or a celebration. It's literally because she does have students who oh, are so ab- hungry they can't focus. Absolutely. And so I can see from a classroom management perspective how it would be difficult to balance making sure that your kiddos who do need access have it and then kiddos who can't have free access not right. have that. That right. seems like a hard balance. Not that it's impossible or that you know something can't be done for both needs to be met, mm-hmm. but that just right. seems like an added challenge for a public classroom. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. It's definitely
0: death like when we're talking about funding and yeah. underfunded schools and underpaid teachers, and we can't find paras. And I'm sure that's kind of where you felt. Like you yeah. got to a point where you just felt defeated and you're like, we've been battling this, it's not working. And so How did you arrive to that point where you wanted to try Epic to see if that worked?
2: Well, and I don't know if you want, (laughs) I don't know how much of this you want on there, but um, we battled to get them to understand in the classroom and uh, and what he needed and to keep food out of the classroom and to not blame him when they were not meeting his needs. They weren't doing what they needed to meet his needs educationally, and they weren't doing what they needed to meet his needs safety-wise. They were leaving him. They were expecting him to control food. And he could not, he would, he should not have been expected to, Right. and they were blaming him for not controlling food. So he, he was seeing other kids having their lunch. He would finish his lunch, a uh, pair, no one was keeping an eye and watching and um, other kids would leave their lunch or juice boxes. It was juice boxes that we had a big problem with. And uh, he uh, would pick up their juice box. Well, then, and, and drink it. The school then looked at it as he, he took their, that child's food. He took that student's food uh, well, they shouldn't have had access to it. And, um, it it was really difficult to get them to understand those. They weren't meeting, you know, any of his educational needs at all. So we fought, we fought that for a few, few, two years. And then that last bit of it, the attitude was just very blaming, blaming Ethan, the para became physical with him. So I could fight all the other battles and continue to do it. But when you start injuring my child, I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was just, and he loved school. That was the sad thing. He would, this is a kid who would be upset if there was a snow day. would be sad if it was a holiday. <laughs> he, you know, he wanted to go to school. He loved school, but through that experience, that time he was, it was in high school. He, um, he was hating it. He was having nightmares. He was resisting going to school. He wasn't feeling, he was waking up, not feeling good. And then it was, I don't want to go to school. Okay. Or, you know, you know, you don't feel good or what's going on. No, I don't feel good. But it was, it was, um, it was, but then he was upset. He didn't go to school. So there was, we knew that there was just, you know, war going on. That was just brewing. The whole thing just was brewing and came to that head. And I just, um, we, we took him out and he, we had seen that enthusiasm and that light in him for learning just fizzle. And, um,
0: Oh yeah, and he's so social. Ethan is yes. He loves to be social. He loves to be around yep. other kids, other ad, even adults. And mm-hmm. so I can imagine that if you started seeing him not wanting to go to the right, like that's a huge red flag that he's oh. unhappy.
2: Right. Absolutely. That was the thing is, um, you know, we kept we kept looking at different alternatives, and there's so few options for students who have extraordinary needs if their local district isn't working out. It's it's really a challenge. At least here, we tried to look at different schools to get him transferred, and we and we were battling that. That wasn't working, and so finally we just we had some issue. They they had no para for gosh half the school year one year. Wow. And um, couldn't find anyone, so we did homebound um, because he couldn't be in the classroom without a para, and it took. Six months. It was half, it was a it was a full semester. He was homebound. Wow. And kind of through that, we kind of realized, okay, we, we might be able to make this work to do Epic and do it differently. So it, it didn't take long. Once we got started with Epic as a great, great teacher, it didn't take long for him to see that light back and that it, it, it you know to be excited. He he had gone from a classroom where they were had him working in a workbook. It was like a second grade level workbook. And so when we moved to Epic they just said, let's see, you know, let's just give him a shot and see what all he, you know, what he can do, and what is he interested in? That was the great thing with Epic. What is he interested in? It was like, wow, you mean you're not going to sit him in front of, you know, doing this little workbook all day? <laughs> you know, that that change was just incredible. So, what what was your favorite class, even? What were your favorite classes at Epic?
0: science. Forensic science. Forensic science. That's a Fun class. Yes. Do
1: you like TV shows like CSI and other crime shows? Yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I was expecting that class to be, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have just off the top of my head thought that was a class he would be interested in. He hadn't really shown any interest in the crime, crime shows or crime information. And um, he loved it. He, and it was high school level. Actually, I think kind of beyond high school level. I didn't have forensic science one or two in my high school. That wasn't something that was offered. And I don't think it's super common to have that offered in high school. I may be wrong, but I haven't heard about that very frequently in high, on a high school level. Well, he excelled at it. In fact, he worked ahead so fast. And I would kind of, when we would, he would do his work, I would kind of, you know, make check in and make sure that, you know, he was, not having problems with it. It was going okay, but he would move ahead so fast. I couldn't even keep up with it. He'd finished um, almost an entire semester in like the first six weeks. Yeah, so oh we, we were having to tell him to slow down. So wow. he had gone, he went from, yeah, really being really held back in what he could do to just This environment with Epic works out so well because he was able to choose what he wanted to do and what classes he wanted to do. Forensic science one and two. The other one that you liked was? Technic science one and two. Uh, That's
0: awesome. That's so fitting for you because I know you love animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: It was a lot of work, wasn't it? And he really had to learn a lot of new things because it wasn't just about like, how do you brush a dog or how do you feed a cat? It was a lot of like, what goes into keeping them healthy and things like that. Things that can that go wrong. Yeah. It was really, I mean, I would, when he was finished, I would kind of go through and read some of it. And um it was definitely a beyond and above anything I had, I knew about. So Wow.
0: I'm assuming Amy, that just your experiences with Ethan kind of influenced your journey with Audrey and what you yes. thought would be the most fitting for your family. Right.
2: Yeah. And we actually started her, she actually started off in Epic before I had made that switch for Ethan. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. She, we, she did. She was at little lighthouse for a while. And we loved it. We loved Little Lighthouse. and um, But we were just looking at those challenges of changing. And just her personality and how she does, we decided to try it and see how she how she did. And it really fits her really well. Did Ethan attend Little Lighthouse too? He didn't. We were on the waiting list for him. but. We were offered to, gosh, by the time. That waiting list was so long back then because Little Lighthouse it was so small way back then. Audrey w- attended the, the year that they opened the great, brand new, amazing new building that they have. You know, we took a long time. The waiting list was long. And, yeah.
0: Um, it's long I mean, now too. Yeah, yeah. Shelby's going through that with her son. He's autistic and mm-hmm. said that they told her like two and a half years right now. Is yeah. what the reading yeah. is. I jokingly said, because
1: it's, it's not abnormal for yeah. siblings to, if one's on the spectrum for the other to be as mm-hmm. well, since mm-hmm. that's not abnormal. I jokingly asked if I could put my second child that doesn't exist yet on the waiting <laughs> list the moment that they're born <laughs> so by the way. time they get to two and a half and they need those services that
2: they'll be able to go and not right go. yeah I don't blame you one bit yeah so one of the things about Little Lighthouse, I will tell you, is that we had been all, through all of these, you know, every year. So every year before this, before school starts, when Ethan was was in school, we would go in and, and talk to the school, explain to them, kind of do like an in-service um, about prior release syndrome. You know, we would offer for anyone who's going to be working with them, um, even, you know, the nurse, uh, people who worked in the cafeteria, all of the, you know, PE teachers, anyone who was going to... Anyone who wanted to listen, we would share that information with. So it definitely is teachers and people who are going to be directly, you know, working with them. Uh, so we would go in and explain about the syndrome, about a little video and like information, a little, you know, here's some info about Ethan. I have what I call an Ethan instruction manual, <laughs> but it's actually like a notebook and I keep lots of information, you know, for the school about, you know, medical uh, needs and, um, and then also, you know, educational information about Ethan. So, Ethan's favorite color is purple. So, we have a purple binder that I would, you know, take. And so the, the teachers had access to all that information. You guys are so silly. <laughs> but when we went into Little Lighthouse, I didn't have to do, we did give them information but there wasn't a battle they just absolutely understood accepted and said what can we do yeah thing i i cried because it was such a different there was no resistance and i go, and i had gone into every everything we do there's resistance school wise you know there's always there's always a, a battle for something that he needs
1: there's an age difference between audrey and ethan and mm-hmm usually with time, things get better. Have you noticed any areas that things are so much
2: better for Audrey than they were for Ethan?
0: Hmm.
2: So I I think one of the things that has helped a lot is we already knew, we already had an idea. We kind of, you know, we knew, I don't want to say we knew what we were doing because she's, diff. you know, she's our own, own self, but right. we had an idea of what we were doing. Um, whereas when he was born, there was a real period of grief, which is, it's hard for parents a lot of times to say that. Love my child. He's amazing and wonderful, but it was hard. It was a change in what you're anticipating, what you're expecting. And, and he was our third So we, you know, we went into that thinking, we knew what we were doing and we're just really blindsided by Prader-Willi syndrome. And we had to figure out everything from therapies to G can a G tube for feeding. Gosh, even he couldn't breastfeed. That was huge for me for the first, our first two were breastfed. So not being able to breastfeed was, was hard because that's a great bonding time with your child. And just the NICU itself is a um, interrupter in bonding time with parents. Yes, Um, you know they need to be there, and it's super important. That was a big difference. Not that I was sad; it was just challenging. It was harder. Everything was unexpected and new. And so when when Audrey came, it was all joy for us. We were excited and happy, and um, and we kind of had an idea. I wasn't scared. There's a lot of fear when you don't know what your future looks like. So with having Ethan 12 years, we had an idea, and so the future didn't look as quite as scary as it did 12 years later.
0: Ethan, are you ready for a couple of questions for you yes okay so so on this podcast we talk about a lot of different things and something that i think you can give people a lot of good information about is your service dog or service dogs in general because some people don't know about those animals or what they can do or how they can help (laughs) um so, Ethan, can you talk about Cotton a little bit and what you loved about him and what he did for you? Anything you want to share? I got
2: Cotton when when, I, when I'm 10. And he was mm-hmm. 2. And he was 2. Yeah. Cotton went through two years of training, was matched with Ethan. And Ethan was about 10. Okay, whatever.
0: Okay. so is yeah. that how long their training usually is? Is it typically pretty extensive, right? Yeah,
2: and it's pretty typical. It Usually, you know, about two years. It all depends on what they're trained for. And he was, yeah, full service dog. He was the extreme home makeover Matt found. a. We said we had mentioned um, that we had been interested in a service dog. We've been looking for a service dog for him. And we were on a waiting list for one. And so they ran with some of those things that we mentioned. Cotton had started off being trained um, as an autism service dog. Or um, they also call it a, a neuropsych service dog. And then when they matched him with Ethan, then they tweaked that for several months to really what to kind of match what Ethan needed in addition to some of the things that they were already working on, which they would do with anyone um, when they were matched, when, usually when they're matched with a person. So that's what he started off as.
1: What was Cotton's job for you? What did he do?
2: He helped me wake up Paul. fall. Yes, he could, he, Cotton helped with physical tasks like breaking, he could help him break his fall. He helped with balance. And calming. Yes, and calming, that was huge. I of so, yes. calming. Um, he learned, he interrupted different behaviors that he would, you know, you would notice with Ethan. Um, he, but he really provided, he would notice that Ethan needed, um, he needed like some some input. So he would provide deep, um, you know, lap command. He would do it on his own as well. But you um, always had that command where we could tell him laugh and he would provide that deep sensory input, which is really, gosh. Sounds like a simple thing, but yeah, petting, it was sensory. It was very calming. Of course, petting an animal is calming, but Cotton definitely knew. He could just sense when Ethan was getting a Part of the syndrome, uh, they have melt, meltdowns. Kind of once that train has left the station, it's very hard to kind of get it to pull it back. So Cotton would notice that he was getting, you know, we call it edgy. Yeah. Those kind of things happening and, and intervene. And just kind of put himself. Hey, I need a pet, and who's gonna say no? <laughs> Ethan immediately would be petting him, wouldn't you? And then over time, Cotton got to know him and understand that that bond is so incredible. I've st- a
0: bond started when I sleep with him.
2: Yes, that was part of the the, the process of them bonding together is the, having the dog sleep. I lay on again. him,
0: and he lets
1: me lay on him. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it is that by he would alert us of anything that was wrong. If he thought Ethan was doing something he shouldn't be doing, he let us know. Um, mm-hmm. Had us check on him all, a lot, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He would tell us, hey, something's going on with my boy. And he would come and get us and tell wolf. us. And we would go check him. Yeah, He would woof and tell us. Did he recognize seizure activity? Yes. So that was the other thing. Migraines, seizures. Um, he would notice if we were having a gastroparesis flare, often days before we would be able to notice any symptoms. There were times when I would take him to the doctor <laughs> and tell, a great, we have a great pediatrician um, and say, Oh, I don't know what's going on. So part of the syndrome, they don't run a fever. They don't, um, they don't vomit and they don't, um, the pain tolerance is altered. So a lot of those typical, you know, you, you notice if your kid's running a fever or they're throwing up or they act like, Oh, my ear hurts. Well, Ethan doesn't always do that. So I would take him to the pediatrician and say, Ethan's service dog keeps alerting. And I don't know what it is. And I felt like such a such a, such a silly mom for taking him. But every time I did that, there was something going on. It was a uh, double ear infection. That was the first one. And so his pediatrician said, oh, this dog knows what he's doing. So anytime he's alerting, you know, don't feel silly, you bring him in and we'll figure it out. And uh, I think there was gosh, every time he, he knew even like headaches, he would sniff his head and then, um, some seizure activity, but he wasn't having the full seizures at first. It wasn't until the last few years that he was doing that, but yeah, it, he, he would let us know something was going on with it, Ethan. Uh, cotton. Yeah. Cotton passed away last year. I'm sorry. So That has been. So when I talk about in the past, that's, yeah, it's been a a huge void and we really uh, realized like how much you get into the day, day in, day out. And we just, you know, go about what we're doing because we was had him for 11 years. And, um, when they're not there, you really, really feel in in every little aspect of all the things that they did. Is there a possibility of getting another? How does that?
0: So we're working on it. So we know a friend at the um, my host backline therapy that I, and she knows a trainer. Her
2: service dog came from there. So the lady trains, she trains dogs, but she trains service dogs because her child needed a service dog. So she kind of segued into that. And um, so we, we got information from, from her and started talking to her and, She actually had puppies, but she was uh, training, starting off from the very beginning, training. So we um, got one of those puppies, and we're going through training with her, and then she got married and moved. (laughs) So we are in the process of trying to pivot and kind of find out, try to figure out what else to continue her training. Yes, tell them what kind of dog she is.
0: She is a
1: -a Labradoodle. What was cotton? He's a mix of a
2: well in a great pyrenees oh he was big then yeah he was about the size of a lab, average size of a lab and but very muscly very strong he got the muscle and then we got some of that undercoat fur of the great pyrenees which was great fun wasn't it he loved ethan didn't he Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes he would come an alert and we would be like we would check him and we'd be like we don't know what's going on and he would give us this space like I cannot believe you people are these parents are not doing what I'm telling you know you're not fixing hey, us. Hey. Fix this <laughs> mm-hmm. I give you oh no that's right he's like I'm telling you I'm doing everything I can to tell you and you guys are just not getting it
0: yep how oh, funny mm-hmm. yep. so Ethan I think a lot of people probably are wondering what is the proper etiquette when they see a service dog out with someone? What should they do? Are they allowed to pet them? Do they need to ask you? What should strangers do when they see you out with, or with your dog? Ask me, folks. Mm-hmm. Ask me,
2: ask me, first. So typically when you see a service dog in public, um, you want to not interact. Um, Ethan is so social. We knew that people were going to ask him about his dog. And that was another thing that was really great about Sir Cotton is he was kind of a segue um, socially yeah. into talking about Ethan, you know, could talk to anyone about his dog. So um, they specifically gave him a command that was visit. So it, we could if ethan had a scenario a situation where he wanted to let someone pet him then that was we could give him the command visit and it wouldn't interfere cotton knew it was like oh okay visit and that was it Mm -hmm. but you know it, it that was for very specific situations and when we were out in public with cotton you really want no one to interfere with what you're doing for the most part it's hard i know we love animals you know, I've, we've had to work for years, even before we had cotton for my kids and we right, saw a service right. dog in public, we don't pet the dog and we don't distract the dog. That was right, super right. important to learn because they're working, right? So it's
1: important for us to know and to help our children understand that service dogs are working and distracting them can cause danger for their owners, for the person right, that you're working right.
2: You want, you really want to just almost act like there's no dog there. If you ever come across a service dog that is, um, doesn't have a handler. Mm-hmm. that's a time. Don't ignore that service dog. That's a time to go and find out. It's That's probably a situation where someone is needing the, your help. Right. right. Um, if you, you could be alerting this, to you because you're right. the closest human around, right. Know? They're trained to go find help when it's needed for their person. And so if you find a dog that um, service dog that is, is by itself, do what you need to do to find that, find that person.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that because I think I knew, but I didn't think about how much they're working when they're out in public. So You know, even common for
2: us to want to be like, oh, I like your dog. I know. Yeah. We would get a lot of times when, when, when they're relaxed and even taking a snooze, those dogs know what they're doing. They know that the, okay, we're sitting in my hand, my person is sitting, doing something. And you know, we're, you give them a command um, to lay down and stay and they know when it's time where they can take a snooze Mm -hmm. Uh, they understand what they're doing but you don't even want to distract them then because even though they're snoozing they they have an ear going and they know what's going on so Mm -hmm. it's best just to to really almost pretend that there's no dog there did cotton
1: have a uniform
2: what did cotton wear a vest a harness yeah so they added for it to help him with balance he had a he wore a harness and then of course we had a leash and then um they added a like a handle that Ethan was comfortable with to help him with balance so Ethan could hold on to that and Cotton had a, a command so he his command was dress so he knew when it was time to get that harness on you tell him dress and he he came running and would sit there he was super excited he loved to work that was you know he loved to do his job and he would get dressed for his day didn't he he put his mm-hmm. paw in, and then we'd have to get the harness adjusted then his other paw would go in <laughs> he knew didn't he he knew the routine. They're so smart. They told us that he was about the intelligence of an of a 5-year-old human. When they when I thought okay, sure. <laughs> but he understood things. It was amazing, didn't he? He knew. He knew what was that?
0: Ethan, thank you so much for sharing that story about cotton and letting me ask you and your mom questions because these stories that we are publishing on our podcast are going to help a lot of families. It was super
1: great to meet you guys. I know. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for chatting with us.